Recently, I sat down with Sherilyn D. Howcraft, one of the editors of Foundational Texts of Mormonism, examining major early sources. Scholars have frequently mined early Mormon historical sources with little attention to source criticism. A noteworthy exception is Dean C. Jesse, who examined Period 1, History of Joseph Smith the Prophet, by himself and showed that it was written by a dozen different scribes and clerks, not Smith. Jesse's scholarship showed the necessity of understanding authorship, textual origins, and record production. Taking a page from Dr. Jesse's playbook, this volume scrutinizes documents as products of history rather than simply sources of information. Because when records are examined as artifacts of the culture from which they originate, they reveal things beyond the content of the records themselves. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Sherilyn D. Howcroft to talk about a book she edited along with Mark Ashurst McGee and Robin Scott Jensen, Foundational Text of Mormonism. Sherilyn has been employed by the Church History Department since the year 2000 as an archivist and document specialist for the Joseph Smith Papers almost before it was the Joseph Smith Papers. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. When I started in 2000, my responsibilities actually entailed a few things. First, I was working part-time on gathering source materials for the Relief Society and Priesthood Manual on Joseph Smith, and then I started working the rest of the time with the Joseph Smith Papers, which at the time was the Papers of Joseph Smith. And a majority of my time was spent down at BYU in the documentary editing office at the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute for Latter-day Saint history. I worked on it before there were volume editors. It was just basically Dean Jesse, his office, Ron Esplin, Richard Anderson on occasion popping in, and we would discuss documents and essentially working on organizing the documents themselves. You have a rich educational background. I was amazed at some of your degrees. Tell us about a few of them. I received my BA in English from BYU, and my minor ended up being Hebrew, and I went to the BYU Jerusalem Center in 1998. We were actually the first intensive Hebrew group of students that went there. The prior semester, it was the first intensive Arabic program, so it was an interesting experience being among the first to do that, and when I returned, I went ahead and paid for all my student loans and all that, and then I came down to Salt Lake. Uh, one of my friends who went to Jerusalem with me, she told me about an intensive Arabic program at the University of Utah. It was part of a Middle Eastern Languages Consortium, and we went ahead and did that, and I was studying Arabic eight hours a day, and it was intense, but very, very worthwhile, and then after that, I applied at the church office building, and rest is history. So. <laughs> rest is really history. <laughs> it's still like I need a drum roll right there. <laughs> what do you consider the foundational texts of Mormonism? For the, the volume itself, there were 
two things that we considered. Specifically foundational, we were referring to the founding period of Mormonism, but also when we referred to the texts, we were specifically talking about the sources that are used repeatedly when historians and scholars study Joseph Smith and early Mormonism. And so those founding texts are, of course, the Book of Mormon, but also Joseph Smith's journals, his history, and Lucy Mack Smith's history, the texts that are really pivotal when we talk about early Mormonism. Just give a blueprint of the book. What are the authors doing with these foundational texts? Are they giving summaries? Are they analyzing them? Are they talking about provenance? What are they doing with these? The chapters themselves are looking at these texts from a number of angles. One of the things that we attempted to do with the volume is to not just look at sources as historical sources that to write narrative history, because that's predominantly what these records are used for. Historians mine them for information and then create this narrative history. We wanted to go beyond that because not only are these records useful for their source material, but they're also products of history. And so we wanted to look at these documents, these records, as artifacts of history. Part of the reason we wanted to do that was because there's more information going on in these records than what is written. And it can become problematic to approach these records from just a information mining perspective. Using a critical approach to these records, the records themselves reveal some insights that aren't explicitly stated in the historical sources. For some of these these chapters, yes, they do delve into the provenance. For example, my, my chapter on Lucy Mack Smith history, I did delve into the provenance in part because it has been so thoroughly misunderstood. Other chapters delve into context of the records and their production, that kind of thing. I can see as an editor there was a need for this book because sometimes when I'm working with historians or amateur historians, they'll use a source and I'll go back to them and say, I'm sorry, that source has been supplanted. It's inadequate. And sometimes we'll go, why? And well, lots of times we can just say, well, Joseph Smith papers, they're the primary source now instead of, say, the history of the church or the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. But also there's some sources that have been commonly used in the past that have become suspect or people have even questioned, where is this coming from? This isn't really a book for the layman. But it's not strictly for the historian. What audiences were you targeting? We tried to target both scholars and those who have an intense passion for history. Part of the reason is because there are some pitfalls regarding records. And and a lot of times there are some historians that are very, very aware and very connected with the records themselves and others not so much. And so what we wanted to do is kind of put up road signs as to some of these records. We're aware that a lot of people don't have the opportunity to delve as deeply in the records as we do with the Joseph Smith papers. And yet we wanted to supply people with that knowledge and with that information, you know, that toolkit that would make them more aware and more cognizant, more savvy about the records themselves and how to use them. And also to kind of unwind some of the 
misperceptions that have occurred in the past with some of these records. For example, with the Joseph Smith history, when Dean Jesse wrote his article on the Joseph Smith history, prior to that point, a lot of people would take the seven-volume history of the church and say, oh, Joseph Smith said this. Similarly, with the Lucy Mack Smith history, according to Lucy, this is what happened. And what Dean did for the, the Mormon scholarly community was he was able to take this history and really dissect it and say, hey, it is not what we think it is. And so there are many times in the history of the church where it says, I did this. Well, it was actually Willard Richards that was writing that, or William Clayton. So you have this sense of this multi-scribed history that took decades of work, much of it occurring way after Joseph Smith has died, and also this, this sense of liberal use of other records that simply aren't coming from Joseph Smith. And so all of a sudden, the way that we perceive the Joseph Smith history became more complex, but it also became more rich, uh, more nuanced. Our hope in bringing these materials to light in this volume is in using a critical approach to these records, we recognize that the records are far more complicated, but also in the example of the Joseph Smith history as well as the Lucy Mack Smith history is that we simply can't write like this. We can't say that they said certain things given how layered and nuanced the records are. And I think we did that for a long, long time. There was such a dearth Mm -hmm. of direct what Joseph said Mm -hmm. in his sermons in Nauvoo. If we got it from the history of the church, that seemed so authoritative. And then that was kind of turned on its head by Dean Jesse, where he's like, no, they wrote it in first person, but it was really third person after the fact. So you talked about being able to add more nuance to historical research. How does this book give historians the tools to do that? A lot of that tool set is not explicitly stated. It's more along the lines of what one could infer from these chapters. So for example, in Jenny Reeder's chapter on the Relief Society Minute book, part of what she deals in is the sense of what is explicitly stated and what is not stated. And so you get this sense of why there are pauses in certain women not participating in the Relief Society or certain pauses in certain scribes that are part of the Relief Society book. I found that very interesting. Yes. What the record doesn't say speaks volumes. Yes. That may be a direct quote from Jenny. I don't know. (laughs) Well, and it does speak volumes because... A lot of times when it comes to using the records, we think, oh, well, we'll just use this information. The certain absences of people are, as you say, they speak volumes. I mean, the absence of Phoebe Rigdon from the Relief Society membership, I think, is quite telling, given some of the volatility that's going on with Sidney Rigdon at the time. I mean, just it's fascinating how, how these records come together, and the fact that, you know, a good chunk of these women who are participating in Relief Society are plural wives of Joseph Smith. And so there's this undercurrent of what's going on in this organization that's very dynamic, and yet it's not being spoken in the record. At least if it is, it's this sense of holding the morals and and the virtue of the women of the Relief Society. But it's always in the background, this framework. 
You, along with Mark and Robin, you're all documentary editors. What would you say are the objectives of documentary editing? So there are a couple of objectives with documentary editing. One is to publish authoritative texts. A lot of times when people start researching and writing about key figures in history, be it religious history or American history, you want to know that the documents that you're using are authentic, that they aren't questioned or that they're not forged. Part of the objective for documentary editing is to give that type of information on these records, but it's also to create an access point to the records. A lot of interested parties, a lot of scholars, they just don't have the luxury of going to archive after archive after archive to mine these rich sources. And most people, frankly, don't have the budget to travel like that. Part of the utility of documentary editing is to create that access point. We also, in documentary editing, we look at the intention, the production, the transmission, and reception of a document. And the purpose of it is to illuminate these texts, but to not interpret them. In doing so, what it does is it allows scholars to encounter the records on their own terms without another scholar interpreting them. And so it's just kind of this raw data that can be used to write biographies. And and one of the things that historians such as David McCullough says, I wouldn't be able to write these biographies that I do were it not for these documentary editions. So someone paving the way to go before them. I'm convinced that the best biography on Joseph Smith is yet to be written. Oh, I agree. Definitely. Let's talk about your chapter in the book. Sure. So you examined the history of Joseph Smith by his mother, Lucy Mack Smith, a book that many, many people are familiar with. It's been used to write curriculum. I think it's kind of been used as a proof text Mm -hmm. for the restoration. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many people have made it all the way through. I've started it about 10 times. I get to like <laughs> chapter five and then I threw the genealogy and the Coastville Saints and then I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you're not the only one. So, <laughs> so the Lucy Mac Smith history was a history that was written beginning in uh, 44 and continuing through 45. Lucy Mac Smith the mother of the prophet, she wanted, well, there's a couple of stories going on in in terms of who started this. One was that Martha Jane Corey, who had known the Smith family for a few years, she wanted to create a simple book for children. And she was, had been interested in the Smith family and she had gathered information on the Smith family for several years. That's one story. Another story is actually coming from Lucy Mack who says, I've undertaken by the direction of the Twelve a history of the Smiths and, and Joseph Smith and, and that kind of thing. And so Martha Jane Corey uh, ends up working with Lucy Mack to compile this history. At some point, Howard, in the winter, he ends up quitting working. He, he was a school teacher there in Nauvoo. He ends up quitting that work and assisting his wife in writing this history. They um, go ahead and, and work on this history together and uh, complete it at the close of 1845. And then what happened? Oh, it has a very interesting story behind it. When they finished writing the history, uh, a copy of it was given to the church and a copy of it was given to Lucy Mac Smith. Lucy's copy, there's kind of competing stories as to 
who had it. There's the story of Alman Babbitt having it, William Smith, potentially it tra- being transferred to Isaac Sheen, and then it ends up getting into Orson Pratt's possession. Orson Pratt ends up taking it to England. He has it published without the authorization of the Quorum of the Twelve and published in 1853. And then there are some concerns of accuracy, which is very interesting because a lot of those concerns aren't voiced until a decade later. And so as a result of that, there's attempts to revise the manuscript in the historian's office in the 1860s. I heard that Brigham Young didn't like it. That is correct. Yeah, there's some pretty strong language towards the history itself. There are other people who've done much more research into his claims as well as are those concerns legitimate and and that kind of thing. I, I didn't necessarily discuss that in my chapter, but it is interesting to note that the questions of the accuracy of the record coincide with the rise of the RLDS church and claims of succession and legitimacy of priesthood and all of that. So, Well, you talk about reception <laughs> history, and I talked about starting this book several times. Mm-hmm. The first time I was a teenager, and I opened mm-hmm. it up, and I started reading it, and I thought, wow, she wrote really, really well for mm-hmm. being an uneducated housewife in the early 1800s, a farm wife. So when I started reading your chapter, it just, you know, sometimes you don't connect the dots. You just take it at face value. So I start reading your chapter and I realize that this is the work of two very good writers that you mentioned. Uh Yes. And repeated interviews with Uh Lucy Mack. And Lucy Mack actually didn't pen any of it. That's correct. As far as who's inscribing the record itself, it's Martha Corey. What's interesting is if you look at the rough manuscript itself, the first half of it, it's written by Martha, but it's edited by Howard. So you've got these little corrections and changes, kind of finessing of sentences that's going on by Howard. But in the second half, things shift a bit. And it's still in Martha's handwriting, but there begins to be these instructions to a reviser. It's kind of this paratext that's going on. What I refer to in my chapter is kind of the scaffolding of this project. References of what texts to include, sometimes some references to express sympathies at length or to infuse certain aspects of it with some emotion. Here's this foundational text of Mormonism, Uh Lucy Maximus History. That, like I said, it's been used kind of as a proof text because it has Mm -hmm. these visions that Joseph Smith Sr. had, Mm -hmm. and they're very similar to visions in the Book of Mormon, and supposedly Mm -hmm. then that helped the Smith family accept Joseph's story easier. Mm -hmm. So you go through and you show what it is in the rough draft and Mm -hmm. how the Corys revised it. As an amateur, not as a documentary specialist, but as an editor, okay, substantively, it seems to me like we can reasonably accept that Lucy gave this information to the Corys. Might not be word for word what happened, but it grabs the essence of what happened years later. And what more could you do at that point? I'm looking at this and I I think, so how does that help me decide 
how to judge this source? Well, the source itself is complicated. Falling back to the scenario with the Joseph Smith history, there's been this sense of, well, we can just say Joseph Smith said this and that would be fine. The problem that we have with that in the Lucy Mack Smith history is that it's not a pure text. We can't say, oh, this is Lucy's authentic voice because it's not. And part of that is a product of the time frame. The Lucy Mack Smith history itself is a, a product of social publication. And that's probably a term that's not familiar to most readers of Mormon history, at least. It's kind of a faceted approach. Social publication is a sense of trying out texts on audiences before a broader distribution. For example, with Lucy Mack, she talks about how she has recited the history of the Smiths over and over to the point of destroying her lungs. And so she decides to commit her history to print. This is very much in the vein of social publication. She's trying out this text on audience. She's telling people this narrative of her family. So this telling and retelling essentially is creating a narrative that she builds upon with each time that she presents this to people. And so by the time the history is actually written, this history of her family is very much already a part of her life and her experience. She's not taking this you know, from scratch because she's been telling people this over and over again. I wondered when you were talking about social publication, if it were like a comedian trying jokes out at a comedy club, okay, that didn't play well. I need to change it a little bit. I hate to say that, but did she like try it out and say, oh, I need to add a little bit more because I didn't get the reaction I wanted? Or is she just refining it? We really don't have a lot of information on the intellectual things that she's doing to package this history. But what we do know is the sense of, yes, she's telling this and retelling it. Do we get a sense of how frequently she's doing this? No. She's telling this at Jonathan Hale's home. She ends up explaining her sense of history of the family at that point. And you do also get the sense that she's telling this to other members of the church. She is incrementally working this. And if you look at the sense of texts and memory and how we re-articulate and redefine experiences based on passage of time and our sense of memory, she's probably reworking this and finding a different sense of meaning with each time that she tells this. So what you're telling us is once she tells it to Martha Corey, she's telling the story of her story rather than the story of her memory. She's telling the story of her story, yes. Looking back on the on the writing of the history, Martha Corey Lewis, Howard and Martha's daughter, talks about my mother would go to Mother Smith, and Mother Smith would dictate her history, and Martha would write it down, and they would basically go back and forth on this text until Mother Smith would grow weary. And so you do get this sense that, yeah, there's a, there's a part of this text that's very much Lucy Mack, very much her telling and retelling her story, which is an important component of the history. And, and you do get the sense of that in the early phases of this history. But then by the time you get to the end of it, it's like, this is nowhere what it was. You know, you, you get the sense in the initial parts of it that it's very intimate, this very 
personal one-on-one type of thing and then it just it feels like it just broadens out from there and yeah the book is very aloof yes and part of that sense of we're losing her voice well we are Mm -hmm. it feels by the time you get to the to the latter part of the book it feels very impersonal and part of that is this sense of social publication because social publication does in fact draw upon pre-existing texts or oral sermons and so this whole idea of throwing in other texts uh, Lucy throwing in portions of Joseph Smith's history she ends up throwing in correspondence she throws in Smith family genealogy that she ends up soliciting from all over the place uh, various family members portions of uh, biography, an autobiography of Solomon Mack. Uh, you, you get the sense that this is just such a multi-authored text, and it is. And, and, and so that's, that's an element of social publication. But there's also this sense of publishing that occurs through multiple scribal copies and reading them aloud. So you have all of these things at play in this, in this history. It's simply not what we're used to when we talk about someone writing their history. We think that they would write their history, that they wouldn't be throwing all these other texts in it. Social publication is very much an element of New England, something that she has inherited from her from her forebears of how you write histories and how you work texts. Before we leave the technical, let's sure. talk about Joseph Smith's dreams because that seemed to be the most problematic part of the text, just deciding where they came from, whose voice they were written in. We know that there are seven visions that Joseph Smith Sr. has. Uh, They end up, some of them end up in the fair copy. Some of them do not. We have pieces that, loose pieces in in this collection of, of these visions. It's apparent that the visions are being uh, appear to be copied although there's one of them and this is the one that's very peculiar that switches from third person to first person narrative and so you have to ask yourself what in the world is going on here so first of all we know that there's been a selection process that has occurred for some reason some of these visions simply weren't considered important or not as important or you know something's going on that they're deciding okay we're going to select these visions to include but also there is this sense that wait a second who's telling these visions is it joseph smith senior or is it lucy max smith and so one of them when you have that flipping of third person to first person you become very much aware that there's a filter here and the filter is Lucy. There's the sense that as much as we want to believe that this is kind of an authentic experience of Joseph Smith Sr., you, you've got that, that filter of Lucy there. But even in the texts themselves, there is the sense that she's pulling some of this from some pre-existing text. And even what we do have in the Lucy Max Smith history, it's written in Martha's handwriting. Well, that means the physical copy that we have is mid-1840s, but where is the text that predates it? Where is that physical copy that predates it? It's a very complicated. Yeah, and we don't know at what point Joseph Smith Sr. shared these with Lucy Mack. Right. 
So, so was it before or after he read the Book of Mormon? Would that have played into it? <laughs> um, you know, it's a good question. I mean, Joseph Smith Sr. ends up dying in, uh, what, 1840, 41? I think it's 1840. Um, and so there's this sense of, okay, well, this has to predate that point. And so there is this question of, yeah, when is this being told? How is it being transmitted to Lucy? Mm -hmm. um, are we looking at... Uh, other records. I mean, we do get the sense when it comes to her obtaining information on her husband that there's a point where she laments, I, I really don't know much about my husband's life prior to our marriage, and so I'm going to borrow information and adapt it to my purpose. And so she's literally pulling these things from other pieces. And it really should be noted that this isn't something that that is being done solely by Martha and Howard Corey in creating this text. That in these parts where the polling is happening, Lucy's saying, hey, I don't know this stuff, so I'm gonna borrow stuff, and, and she does. There's this attempt to homogenize. Yeah, it doesn't homogenize and very the well. Thing. There's it's, clumps yes. here and clumps there, yes. and they've cut and pasted things together, especially in the beginning, Yes, where they're trying to get this history before the story officially begins. Yes. Let's leave the technical behind. Sure. Let's talk about some of the fun. What were some of the fun things you found when you were doing this research? Immediately the thought that came to mind was when I was doing that initial sweep through the record and I was going, okay, there has to be something here to tell me what the order is and how potentially if, if Martha and Howard did impose an order. And I remember reading, and I'm just reading and reading, and I'm, you know, it was kind of this element of br simultaneous fascination with this record and browbeating, because I thought, how on earth do I expect to do this? There's been so many people that have looked at this manuscript. Who am I to do this? And you know, so the, the kind of vacillating back and forth, am I really gonna find anything? And I remember, you know, I'm just, yeah, I, I'm into it several days and I'm thinking, okay, just keep on reading, just keep on reading. And that eureka moment. I think I probably let out an audible squeal when I recognized, oh, oh no, oh, are you kidding me? There's an order here. For me, that was incredibly exciting and incredibly gratifying just as an archivist to recognize that there was an original order there but also the parts that were absolutely delightful to me were seeing those paratextual insertions of the amusing asides of seeing how the quarries are confronting this experience of compiling this history and how they, in some respects, wove themselves into the narrative. That was interesting. I thought that at some points Howard was even checking his wife like, don't yes. go that far. Yes. Part of knowing that Howard is checking his wife there has to do with understanding Howard's work on Joseph Smith's history. Uh, a couple of years ago, the Joseph Smith history that Howard worked on in the 1840s, 1841, was transferred from the First Presidency's office over to the Church History Library and it was published in the Joseph Smith Papers. 
But in analyzing that record, there were composition methodologies that I was seeing that were very similar, that was incredibly helpful. I sincerely doubt that I would have been able to assess aspects of that composition methodology that was going on in the Lucy Mag were it not for that Joseph Smith history. There are several times in the Joseph Smith history where there's some very, I'm trying to find the perfect words, that where there's some tense moments, some very uh, emotional instances in Mormon history where Howard kind of pulls back. If you look at the comparison between the history that Howard is writing and this history that James Mulholland is working on, and you start comparing texts and how they're working things, there is a sense of Howard trying to create a balance or kind of removing some of that emotive element to it, which is very interesting in the Lucy Mack Smith history because these parts where where Martha instructs the reviser to express sympathies at length at the death of Joseph Smith Sr., or you know, the, kind of this, this grief of the widow is removed, and so you have this sense of pulling back on elements like that. But the thing that's interesting, and this I did not include in the chapter, this is the part that's frustrating. Anyone who writes chapters or writes articles, they have that moment of you have to pry it out of your hands. It has to be published. And then you keep on finding out new things. Oh, and you send little emails to the publisher. Is it too late? (laughs) Yes. Even after it's been pried out of your fingers. Even some of the annotation, I'm like, oh, I really need to include this. And it just doesn't happen. So you have this moment of regret. But one of the things, if I could include, when I talk about the sense of pulling away the emotion, is you have that in the sense of the history. And in the final portions of the rough manuscript, you don't have this winding up scene that you have in the fair copy. Now, you're probably wondering, what is that winding up scene? It is a point where Lucy Mack, she details the persecution and the tribulation of the Smith family, but then she basically puts the record before the judgment bar of God, and that basically there will be divine retribution at the judgment bar of God of what has happened to the Smith family. And it is scathing. Now, readers probably think, oh, well, this is a, you know, a hefty way of winding up this history. But we have to understand what has gone on as this history is being written. So the trial of the accused murderers of Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith is occurring in May of 1845. This is the backdrop for writing this history. And so she's winding this up with the understanding that that trial that is going on in Carthage is not providing the family justice for the death of her sons. And so you get this emotive experience at the end, this this conclusion that's very moving, very powerful, and the emotion is not censored as it has been in earlier parts of the history. I find that fascinating. I don't know what to make of that. Even I, I keep on mulling it over. I'm like, what does this mean? Because everything else where in the rough manuscript where there's been this, tell about this, tell about this, express this, sympathize with Lucy here. And all of a sudden in the fair copy, you don't have that, but you have this rush of emotion at the end. I find that very telling. Maybe Orson added that. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, it's in the fair copy. Oh, okay. So we're, we're fortunate there uh, to, to have that because we don't have it in the rough manuscript. Part of it because the rough manuscript, by the time we get to the latter parts of it, it's heavily mangled. Yeah. Um, but also it, it Probably becomes... in the back of a wagon coming <laughs> yeah, across something. the plain. <laughs> but also there is the sense by the time you get to the end, it's kind of a, oh, we need to include this and we need to include this. And so it's kind of, there's portions of it that are kind of memory jogging types of entries more than we're going to write this narrative. Sometimes as an editor, you can be involved with interesting projects or groundbreaking projects or important projects. I think this is one that fits all three categories. It's such an important book. And like I said, some of the chapters are very technical, but others are not. For those just lay members wanting to get their head around these resources, it Mm -hmm. really makes you think. Even Richard Bushman's chapter on the provenance of the Book of Mormon was fascinating. Something you don't, you're not used to reading from Richard Bushman. Just Mm -hmm. makes you think of things in different ways. Yes. And not necessarily bad. Yes. Good. Good. And then also your chapter, you would really think twice about quoting Lucy's book. Which well, <laughs> at the very least saying that she said a yes. certain thing. Yeah. Um, I, I, th- or, I still think it's a very useful piece. It should continue to be used as heavily as it has been used in the past. But I think that now, you know, going forward, that people can use it a little more critically like they do the Joseph Smith history. We can kind of pull apart the pieces and understand the pieces rather than, you know, wrapping it up as one homogenous text. One little gift. Yes. (laughs) Joseph's operation. (laughs) Thank you so much for spending so much time with us today, Sherilyn. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.